0: Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. And it is good to be back with you once again and to open up God's Word together. As Rod said, we are launching into a brand new series that we are calling Songs of the Savior. And the reason that we're entitling this sermon series by that is four times in the opening two chapters of the Gospel of Luke... As the birth of Jesus is announced, people spontaneously overflow in these emotionally charged, spirit-filled, poetic verses. Um, Zechariah, Mary, the angels, and Simeon all explode with adoration for the coming of Christ. And they very much read like the Old Testament Psalms. So I think it is good and right and appropriate to call this series Songs of the Savior. In other words, our hope is that you will be drawn into such joy, into such wonder, into such awe at the coming of Christ that in one sense your heart would sink. Would you pray with us here this morning as we get ready to dive into God's word? Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, and for your kindness towards us. Thank you for sending Jesus, the one and only son of God who could rescue us from our sins. And I thank you that this time of year is filled with a sense of anticipation, with a sense of longing, with a sense of waiting For when Christ will one day make our salvation complete, I pray today, Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ, that you would speak to your people, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Oh God, we need you. Spirit, would you come in power? Would you come and bring encouragement and conviction and joy in the Savior? In the precious name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Uh, uh, hang on just a second. I, uh, I'll be right back. Hang on. How did you feel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you get a little anxious? Did something go wrong? What happened? Is he okay? Did he forget something? None of us like to wait. I mean, that's the reality. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. It feels like it's a waste of time because it is filled with uncertainty. What is going on? This must have been a bit how the Jewish people felt at the time when Luke wrote his gospel. The Lord had been silent at this time at the writing of Luke's gospel for 400 years Get some perspective on that. That is twice the length, double the length of the history of the United States. For 400 years, God had not spoken. There had been no prophet. There had been no revelation. The people of Israel were just waiting to hear from God, and God had not spoken. What is more, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, was just a little puppet state of Rome. They used to be kind of like the the big kid on the block, The power under the reign of David and Solomon and some of the other kings that followed. But now they were virtually nothing. Rome was in charge and there seemed to be no hope on the horizon. They were waiting for rescue and it didn't look like it would ever come. But this was not only true for Israel on a national level. It was also true for Zechariah and Elizabeth on a personal level. They're the main characters in the passage of scripture that we're reading today. Zechariah is the one that actually spoke in Luke verses 1, verses 56 and following. And they had too had a time of personal waiting. Here's what the Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Back up just a little bit. It says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. God-fearing people, holy people, righteous people. And then look at verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Though Zechariah and Elizabeth were godly people, they had no children, which in that day, in their culture, would have been viewed as a severe social stigma that no doubt had weighed on the aging couple for years and years. Truly, the weight would have been killing them. We all can identify to some degree, can't we? Every one of us had faced situations that we felt powerless to change, we looked out at the world. We looked in at our hearts and thought, God, what are you waiting for? are you going to do something here? I'm kind of stuck. I need your help and I hate waiting. Bail me out. Stop this meaningless waste of time. Do something in my situation. God, I need you. We're in the midst of those dark seasons. It's easy to lose faith. It's hard to keep resting. It's hard to keep believing. Simply stated, it's hard to wait. But in spite of appearances, as we will see in this passage, God was doing something. He was getting ready to do something in the life of Zechariah, in the life of Elizabeth, in the life of the nation of Israel and in the whole world. Even though things looked dark, even though the wait looked looked long, God was doing something. I want you to hear something very plainly today this morning, hear this. Your circumstances do not alter God's character. Your circumstances do not alter God's character? Was God still God even though Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't have a child? Yes or no? Was God still God even though there was no Jewish king on the throne? Yes or no? And is God still God in your life? Even if you're waiting, even if the circumstance is dark, even if the situation is bleak, is God still God? The answer is yes, because your circumstances do not change God's character. I think the reason the Lord recorded this story in the Bible is to remind us of a very simple yet profound reality. And this is my point this morning. Simply this. We can trust God while we wait. My friend, I don't know exactly what you're going through. I don't know what you feel like you're waiting for. But I do want to say this. Based on the authority of God's word, you can trust God while you wait. So you might say this and say, okay, Ryan, I get it. God's trustworthy. Yeah, I get it. And he showed up for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he showed up for the nation of Israel. But man, that was the Bible times. I mean, God just doesn't do that same type of stuff today. I mean, should I really be expecting God to show up in my life like he did in the life of Zechariah? Should I really be expecting God to do something in my life like he did for his Old Testament people? I think the answer is yes. And here's why. Because this account is more than simply a story from the biblical times. It reveals to us certain aspects of the Lord's unchanging character. Listen to this. Situations change. God doesn't. Situations change, God doesn't. And I would contend to you that the entire Christian life is simply this. You could sum it up like this. The Christian life is a fight to believe that God who who he says he is. The Christian life is a fight to believe that God is who he says he is. And what God is doing in this passage is revealing to you and I, reminding you and I who he is. So I want to give you this morning, Lord willing, rooted in the text, rooted in the character of God, two bedrock reasons why you, I don't know what your situation is, but why you today can trust God. Do you want those? Do you want to know why you can trust God today? I want to know why I can trust God. I, I want to trust God. I want to remember who God is no matter what my life says. I don't want situations to dictate my faith. I want the character of God to determine which way I go. So two reasons from this text of scripture why you can trust God. Number one, God is sovereign. Sovereign. The first reason that we can put our trust in the Lord is simply that he is sovereign. Now, this is not a word that we use a ton in our vernacular today. But it's a word that the biblical authors frequently use to simply say this. It means that God is in control. This story clearly illustrates this point. Let's get a little background, though. Back in verses 8 and 9, we are told that Zechariah is a priest... And at this time in his life, he's an older man. He's chosen to offer incense before the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem. This would have been like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is like the pinnacle of Zacharias' priestly service. He has this wonderful opportunity, this honor of serving before the Lord in the altar of incense. So he goes in. To perform this duty, this pious, godly man goes in to perform this duty and something astonishing happens. An angel appears to him and speaks. And don't forget, it's been 400 years since God has said anything. So here Zechariah is taking his incense, his censer in there. He's beginning to perform this duty. And boom, an angel shows up and begins to speak to him. The silence is broken. God has now broken back into human history with a verbal proclamation from his messenger. And as if that alone is not enough, listen to what the angel says. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. First of all, that's ridiculous. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's wounds. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Amen. Zechariah, God is coming and your son is going to be the messenger of the Messiah. He is coming. Get ready, Zechariah. So not only does God promise that this aging woman would have a baby, but this baby would be spectacular. Simultaneously, this little boy would bring both personal and and national deliverance. It's good news on all levels, right? It's like not only is our weight over, but our weight is over. God is breaking in and coming to rescue us. So how does Zechariah respond with joy, with worship, with gratitude? Oh, unfortunately, no. Verse number 18. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I like how he said, she's not old, she's just advanced in years, right? He's, he's really polite, even in this situation. In other words, what are you talking about? I'm too old for this. My wife is advanced in years. She is well past the childbearing age. What? Are you talking about? I love how the angel responds. Luke 1, verse 19. I'm Gabriel. Like, that's it. Do. I'm Gabriel. As if enough said. I am Gabriel. I'm an angel. Sitting here by God. Zechariah, if you don't believe me, I don't know what you need to believe. Note to self. If an angel ever appears to you, do not doubt them. Just be like, yes, sir. You know, just, just take whatever they have to say. And for his unbelief, Zechariah cannot speak and probably cannot hear for nine months. I think he's both deaf and dumb for the entire duration of the pregnancy. So he waits. He waits in complete Silence. Think about that. What, what that would be like. Nine months, no talking, no hearing. But when John the Baptist is born, Zechariah's tongue is loosed. And let me tell you something, folks. He comes out swinging. All right, look at verse number, uh, verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of the salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and a shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace so what does Zachariah say After nine months of silence, after nine months of having time to think and pray and probably read the Old Testament scriptures, what does Zechariah come out saying? Surprisingly, it's not much about this long-awaited child that he's been waiting for his whole life. Did you catch that? I mean, the kids only mention one time. Zechariah's major emphasis seems to be how God has been sovereignly fulfilling his plan to save his people this entire time. Zechariah's focus isn't so much on what God has done just for him, but what God is doing on this global scale. Look at verse 69. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, look at 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. This was God's plan. God has been doing this from old times. Look at verse 72. God saved his people to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham. In other words, God has been working the plan that he promised to Abraham back then. To put it very plainly, the centuries of silence, the Roman occupation, the years of childness, they're all the waiting were part of God's plan. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. It means that all of your waiting... All of the barren years, all of the silence, all of the occupation, all of that that is occurring in your life, that's all going according to the sovereign plan of God. He is still in control even when he seems like he's not doing anything. Zechariah's song says that during those 400 silent years, God was not asleep at the wheel. He was not sitting down at the job. He was in complete control, flawlessly bringing about his promises to their fulfillment. Hear this, church. Your waiting does not equal God's inactivity. Your waiting does not equal God's inactivity. If you are waiting for something in your life, that doesn't mean that God is not working. God is working because he is sovereign. He is in control. Now, his timetable might not look like your timetable. His plan may not look like your plan. But God is at work at all times. He is the sovereign of the universe. Sometimes when things are not happening as quickly as we would like them to, we are tempted to believe that God has forgotten us or abandoned us. You don't have to raise your hand. But has there been times when you have said to God, God, have you forgotten me? Maybe that's today, right? Maybe it's right now in your life. God, have you forgotten me because this is going on in my life? Listen to this statement. God's timetable and man's are seldom the same. It's just the truth of the matter. God is always working, but his timetable and ours are often not the same thing. After God promised that Abraham would have innumerable descendants, Abraham waited 20 years before the birth of Isaac. After God gave Joseph a dream that his brothers would bow before them, Joseph waited 23 years before it actually happened. After Samuel anointed David king, David waited 21 years before it came a reality. After God called Paul to take his name to the Gentiles, Paul waited 14 years before his missionary journey. Even Jesus himself spent 30 years in relative obscurity before publicly revealing his identity as God's son. Let me ask you a question. Had God forgotten Abraham and Joseph and David and Paul and Jesus? Yes or no? No. Absolutely not. And if you're in a season of waiting right now, Has God forgotten you? Yes or no? No, no. He's still working his plan out. He's still keeping his eye on the ball. He's still unfolding his promises so that he can take care of his people. I'm not sure what you're waiting for a new career path, a ministry opportunity, a new relationship, financial progress, improvement in your health completion of a degree or program, a change in the status quo, a child, a marriage. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for. But I, and I do not know exactly how it's going to turn out for you. I don't think that's what this passage says. It's going to turn out great. But here's what I do know. God, as it is at work in your life, if you have trusted in Jesus, and he will be faithful to his promises. He will. You can take that to the bank. God is at work in your life and he will be faithful to his promises. Here are the promises of the sovereign of the universe once again, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Hebrews 13, 5. For God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. This is good news. These promises are good news to you because they are from the mouth, they are from the lips of the God who never lies. It may feel like God is not at work in your life, but he can't lie, and he said this. He is sovereign, he is in control, and he is beautifully unfolding his plan in your life at his speed for your good. Just mark it down, folks. You can trust God because this is who he is. Listen, the one and only creator and ruler of the universe promised that he is for you. He is in your corner. He has your back. He is on your side. He is your ride or die. The sovereign God is irrevocably committed to your good. And no matter how bleak the situation may seem, he is putting in work for your ultimate benefit. Uh, my favorite TV show growing up in the 80s was MacGyver. Any MacGyver fans here? Okay, I loved MacGyver. So basically the plot of every MacGyver episode was essentially the same. MacGyver would confront some evil in the world without a gun. By the way, no guns. MacGyver was very anti-gun. Confront some evil in the world without a gun. Because he did not have a gun, he would always get captured locked in some room filled with random things. And MacGyver was apparently some sort of science genius. So you would lock him in a room and he would find a paperclip, a um, piece of bubble gum, and probably, I don't know, a sticky note, right? And he would make a car out of that thing. Bust out of his prison and he would get away. Well, the thing about MacGyver was no matter how much you trapped MacGyver, Like, if you were a fan of the show, you're like, man, he's getting out of that situation. Like, you can't trap MacGyver because he could have a paperclip and he's like free to, like, he's good to go. That's like having a tank for most people. And here's the thing. I've always wanted to say this. God is the ultimate MacGyver. (laughs) His plans can't be thwarted. Like, you can't trip him up. He can't get in a situation that he can't get out of because even that situation, he planned it in the first place. God is at work for your good. And there may be enemies in your life. There may be difficulties in your life that make it seem like God is not in control. But he's better than MacGyver and he can get out of that jam. He's going to get you through. You can trust God no matter what is going on in your life. Because his plan is always going to be fulfilled. And it's the perfect plan. And it will go about at the perfect time. Man, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know why you in your heart tend to say, God, have you forgotten me? I know you say it because we all say it, right? God, do you remember me? But I want to remind you that God is sovereign. He's in control. He was in control in Zechariah's day and he's still in control today. Second thing, you can trust God because God is strong. He's not just sovereign. He is strong. You like that? Those are both S's, Rod. Does that make you happy? Yeah. All right. That's my man. All right. Luke chapter 1, verse 68 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a... What's it say? Okay, that was super lame. Okay. He has raised up a... One more time. He has raised up a... I want that image to be precious to you. I hope it will be in the next few minutes. God, through Jesus, has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, that's not something we talk about pretty much today. But in the Bible, in the Bible, the symbol, the, 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 the idea of a horn was a symbol of strength and authority. In an era before tanks and bulldozers. There was nothing that epitomized raw power more than the horn of a powerful beast, particularly the animal known back in that day as the wild ox. Here's how the Bible develops that metaphor. Psalm chapter 92, verses 9 and 10. For surely your enemies, O Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. Catch this. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox ox. Male wild oxen of this time, which now bi- biologists refer to aerox would have stood around seven feet tall at the shoulders. I mean, these were massive, massive creatures. They would have weighed around 3,000 pounds and had a rack of horns over six feet across. I mean, this would have been a massive, powerful creature. It certainly would have been a fearsome sight. The horn of a wild ox then was a symbol of great power. So when, Jesus, or when the authors of scripture write this, the horn of salvation would have been an allusion to the fearsome strength, the fearsome power that the Messiah would one day possess. How many of you have ever seen the footage of the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain? Have you seen this before? I mean, this is like a scary thing. Like for some reason, people think it would be a good idea to go wear these clothes and put on this little red scarf and they release the bulls down these narrow streets of the city. Just turn them loose and let them run. And people like get in front of them and run. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Have you ever seen a bull catch one of these people? I mean, they catch one of those things and they, they put their head down and they just like effortlessly like, what is this? You know, and, and the, the person is just like tossed aside like a rag doll, like it's nothing. Well, I think that's the idea that, that is trying to be conjured here in this text. God has raised up a horn of our salvation, but not just a regular, you know, little bull. This is a wild ox. This giant creature with these giant horns is going to lower its head at your enemies and gore them to death. The horn of salvation is for you. Jesus will wield this type of power, but not haphazardly, not just randomly at some passerby or that happens to be crazy enough to run out in front of him. But Jesus will wield his strength for the good of his people. Look at verse number 71 again. God has raised up a horn of salvation. Why? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse number 74. That we will be delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. This horn of our salvation will save us from those who are our enemies, is what the Bible is communicating. The powerful Son of God will come to rescue us from those who would stand against us. Unfortunately today, there's this like conception of Jesus. That he was weak, docile, detached personality. Who had long, luxurious hair and a far off look in his eye, right? Have you seen these pictures of Jesus? And while it's certainly true that when Jesus came the first time, he came in humility, but there is far more to Jesus than just meekness and humility. He is meek and humble. But one day, we see that Jesus will return, and he will return as the warrior king. The captain of the armies of heaven who will lay to waste all who would dare stand in his way or lift their hand against his people. Here's how the book of Revelation describes Jesus. You know the one who died on the cross? That one. Listen. Then I saw heaven open and behold the white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. "'His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. "'And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. "'And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, "'and the name of which he is called is the Word of God. "'And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, "'were following behind on white horses.'" From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This dude is bad. This is Jesus and he is not to be trifled with. He's so confident that he has his armies dressed in white. Did you catch that? I mean, the only reason you dress your army in, light, in white is because you're like, Hey guys, you just sit this one out and watch the show. I don't need you on this one. You just stay there with your clean little white uniforms on. I'm going to take care of this battle. I don't even need your help. You are my army, in air quotes, right? Jesus is a bad man. And he is the horn of salvation. This is what we are looking for the horn of salvation. Here's the deal you can trust Christ. You can trust the horn of salvation because no force in the universe can overcome, overpower, or overwhelm him. I do not know what enemies seem to be threatening you right now. What are they? Just think about that for a second fear? Your past? Your present, your future, injustice, sorrow, hatred, pain, loss, suffering, old age, illness, uncertainty. All of these things are real and scary, but rest assured, one day, One day the horn of salvation will step in and he will set all things right. And when he does, when the horn of salvation decides to act, when the horn of salvation decides to step in, listen carefully, nothing can stop him. There is no force in the universe that can stop the Lord. He is stronger than anything. The devil of hell, he'll flip him like the bulls in Pamplona. He is nothing compared to the Lord of our salvation. Listen to how Daniel puts it. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand. Behold, behold the horn of your salvation, church. Behold the one who you can trust because he is mighty. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come primarily just to rec- rescue Zechariah from his childness, childlessness. Or even Israel from his Roman occupation. Or you and I fundamentally from the troubles of this life. The main reason why Jesus was born... And lived and died and rose was to rescue for us from a far worse enemy. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. To put it simply, all of us and every other man, woman, boy, and girl who has walked the face of this earth because of our sin we're not only doomed but we were enslaved to the devil himself. We were the children of wrath. We were the sons of disobedience. We were the ones who were locked down in slavery to the devil and could do nothing to release ourselves from his power. Our enemy is crafty, And he is hell-bent on our destruction. Here's how the Bible says it over in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, there's bad pictures of Jesus, right, as kind of this docile creature. There's also bad pictures of Satan, you know, the guy in the red suit with the horns and the pitchfork. No. No. Man, Satan is powerful, and he is crafty, and he is old, which means he's skillful, and he hates you. And you're not stronger than him. But the horn of salvation is. And if you will look to him, he will save you in a way that you cannot save yourself the horn of salvation will take that mighty horn and drive it through the very heart of your enemy to rescue you from things you could not rescue yourself from. Here's how one theologian, John Piper, describes it. I love this imagery. Satan may be a roaring lion seeking someone who'd devour, but none of those who take refuge in Christ, the horn of salvation, can he destroy. If I were an artist, I would paint for my home a special Christmas painting and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. It would be one of those big oil canvases. The scene would be a distant hill at dawn. The sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shoot up and out of the picture. And all along, silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture, very dark, is a magnificent. Wild ox, standing with his back seven feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet in the air. On both sides of his head, there is a horn curving out up to six feet long and 12 inches thick at the base. He stands there sovereign and serene, facing the southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked. and there impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion dead brothers and sisters trust god yes we're in the waiting right now but the the horn of our salvation is coming and he will trample and impale and and defeat all enemies that would dare rise itself against you. Sin, he went to the cross to pay for it. The devil, he is king over even the devil and his minions. Death itself bows its knee before the resurrected sovereign of the universe. If you have trusted in Jesus, you can wait. You can trust you can hope because he is sovereign and he is unfolding his plan at his own good pace and at his own good time. And you can trust because no force in all the universe will ever overpower this Savior. Church, wait, trust, rest. You say, how do I do that? I, I, I don't even know where to begin. Well, let me give you two very practical things to try to help you with this. Will you take some time and be silent before God? The Lord did something miraculous during Zechariah's nine months of silence. Perhaps we would do well to be quiet and wait on the Lord. Turn off your devices for a while. Take a walk. Get up early and spend some time alone with the Lord in prayer. If you are in a season of waiting, will you just be quiet before the Lord and let him speak to you? Second, look closely at God. When Zachariah's wait was over, his focus was not primarily on the blessing of Lord. His focus was on the one who blessed him, Right? He wasn't so focused on the son he would get. He was focused on the one to whom his son pointed to. So if I could say it this way, focus more on the deliverer than on the deliverance. If you want to learn to trust God in these waiting seasons, put your eyes not on what God is going to do, but more on who God is. And that will sustain you through the dark seasons. Brothers and sisters, are you waiting do you doubt God at times? We've all been there. I don't know what you're waiting for, but I want to close this morning with just kind of an unusual but a simple application this morning to help us. We stand with me here? We're going to sing a song that I think probably all of you know, or many of you do, and it reminds us that not only can we trust the Lord in these seasons of waiting, but that one day God will set things aright. So we're going to sing, it is well with my soul this morning.